Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglives.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Tonight, I do my best to explain the confusion that is at the root of virtually all foreclosure cases, and that is the strategic choice of banks to avoid claiming that the foreclosing party is a holder in due course under Article 3 of the UCC as adopted by all the states. And instead, they claim the much lower status of holder. The answer lies in the difference between presumed facts and the actual facts. What the banks are essentially doing here is saying that our entity here, the trust, whether it exists or not is another story, that the trust is a holder and not a holder in due course. Well, if the loan was in the trust, then it would normally follow that the trust would be a holder in due course if everything was on the up and up and they would therefore the lawyers therefore would claim the status of holder in due course and for reasons i'll make clear in a moment the answer lies in the difference between the presumed facts and the actual facts the spoiler alert is that if there is a difference between the presumed facts and the actual facts, then the foreclosure should be unsuccessful. Now, the problem here is, obviously, it's always money. The other side has these giant banks who are the underwriters and are proceeding under fictitious names of fictitious trusts, who, by the way, are probably since they're only claiming holder status, uh, might be argued, especially if you chip a few flakes away, that they are debt collectors and not creditors. This takes research. It takes a lot of analysis and a real understanding of the logical progression 
of proof at trial. Understanding what I am presenting tonight dictates the defense narrative, discovery, trial objections, and cross-examination. That's why I spent so much time doing uh, consulting work for other attorneys and pro se litigants, giving them their what I perceive to be the appropriate defense narrative subject to the views of their local counsel. I'm broadcasting live from Devout County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog, www.livinglies.wordpress.com, or call 954-451-1230 or 202-838-6345. The last digits spell out my name, N-E-I-L. And pledge whatever you think you can afford. If the show has value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows and everything else that we do without payment or other support, if that has value to you, then please chip in. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So a client of our Internet services store at LendingLies.com asked a simple question. He had asked the opposing side if they were a holder in due course. What he received was like something put in a blender. The answer was evasive. It was misleading and ultimately never answered the question. So now what? Well, he's actually already achieved an intermediate goal. At this point, he can argue that he asked for the identity of the holder in due course and that they were unable or unwilling to provide the information. The confusion emanates from the fact that a holder can sue on the note if it has the right to enforce the note, but that right must come from the creditor. And in order to do that, obviously, uh, if the homeowner is testing the right of the party suing on the note, there must be disclosure of the identity of the creditor. The creditor would be the one who owns the debt, or to put it in a more simple fashion, the party who ultimately would get the distribution of proceeds from the sale of the home if the foreclosure is uh, enforced. So if they would get the money on liquidation of the house and they weren't supposed to pass it on to somebody else who was actually the party owed the money, then that would be the creditor. And that creditor is the only one who can give rights with respect to the note or the mortgage. So this could lead to a, what's called a motion in limine which is a motion to limit evidence that comes in at trial. 
and the motion in limine would be to bar any evidence from the foreclosing party that support that includes facts supporting the elements of a holder in due course, and thus treat the opposing side as having admitted to no purchase, no good faith, and to having knowledge of the borrower's defenses. That, in turn, there's a logic to this. If you can actually argue with credibility that they've admitted to no purchase, no good faith, and having knowledge of the borrower's defenses, or that even one of those elements of a holder in due course is missing, that in turn serves as a foundation for the attack on the foreclosure mill's assertion of holder status and legal standing. It's just one more thing you can add to the pile of attacking standing. And if you can get to the actual facts or the absence of them, you can show that legal standing is not present and never was. The actual party who might have it is uh, their identity is being withheld, and that party, in all probability, is a group of people who don't even know anything about the loan, much less the enforcement of it, the servicing uh, of it, etc. Note that legal standing is different with respect to the note and the mortgage. But also, be aware that many case decisions confuse the two. There are plenty of case decisions around that say the note follows the mortgage, mortgage follows the note. Um, and in so doing, they're confusing the reality of what the statute says in each state. And what the statute says that you might be able to enforce the note uh, without showing that you paid value for it, but you have to show you that you paid value for the mortgage, for the debt, actually, in order to be able to enforce the mortgage by foreclosure. To sue on the note, you only need to prove that you have it in order for all kinds of legal presumptions to arise against the maker of the note, who is, of course, the borrower. But to start foreclosure on the mortgage, you need to show that you own the debt or that you are acting on behalf of someone who does own the debt. Check out the UCC, which is the law in every state, and look at Article 3 for negotiable instruments and status of holder and holder in due course, and then look at Article 9, Section 2 for security agreements and the conditions under which you can enforce them. If you don't own the debt or you don't represent someone or have authority from someone who does own the debt, then you lack standing to foreclose on the mortgage or deed of trust. And you'll see in the signature block on a lot of the assignments of mortgage or assignments of beneficial interest on deeds of trust, you'll see that they put in layers of entities. You know, Joe Smith signing as vice president of document negotiations or some other made-up term of 
say Aquin as the as the servicer who is signing on behalf of the trust or on behalf of the named trustee acting only as trustee and not on its own behalf and therefore the trust. So you have these layers that have to be taken apart. Once you take them apart, it's pretty obvious what to do and what to ask. So keep in mind that the factual progression in most cases is usually the same, the real facts. And it pretty much is as follows. First, the lender at the origination of the loan was merely a conduit for the funds. Second, the money that reaches the closing table at the time of origination arrives there courtesy of another conduit, sometimes called an aggregator. The aggregator uses funds directly from a pool of money deposited by investors to what they think are accounts in the firm that was the underwriter or the firms doing multiple underwritings of worthless certificates issued by the underwriter who used the fictitious names of non-existent trusts as issuers of certificates that disclaim any interest in the debt note or mortgages from loans and purport to be a bond indenture consisting solely of a promise to pay issued by the underwriter using the fictitious name of the trust as though it were a separate entity. So in other words, what the investors are getting is a promise from what they think is an entity, but is actually just a fictitious name. And there is no security for that promise. That the banks are counting on won't come out for another 10 or 20 years when everybody realizes the money's gone. And the payments to investors as they are in any Ponzi scheme, run out. Unless, of course, they're able to continue the Ponzi scheme indefinitely, in which case it may be half a century or a century before the truth comes out about what this so-called securitization scheme was really about. It wasn't about securitization. It wasn't about spreading the risk, it was actually concentrating the risk into the hands of investors and creating greater risk in doing that. The money for the actual loan came from the investors, but not by way of the non-existent trust. 
that leaves the pot empty at the very beginning of the deal that was called a loan agreement. Therefore, there was nothing and no need to pay for the debt because you're not going to pay money to the originator who didn't pay money. And the originator is not going to ask for the money because they don't own the debt. So you won't find a transaction in most cases where the originator gets paid for ownership of the debt, note, and mortgage because the originator is not out any money. They got their fee, and that's all they were interested in. And as you go up the line, none of the so-called successors pay any money because none of the parties before them paid any money for the debt note and mortgage. Hard to wrap your head around, but these are, these are real facts. So the entire predicate rests on a transaction that never happened and the, that predicate is corroborated by the subsequent behavior of the so-called successors, none of whom ever paid a dime for the debt, note, or mortgage. This leaves the investors with no interest in the loan, even, even though they should have had one, and it leaves homeowners with no access to their actual creditors to whom they could address their applications for modification or workout uh, and what have you. So one of the things people ask me is, well, how do we prove this? And the answer is, if you accept this fact pattern that I just gave you, you can readily see what's missing. And that is a reference to an actual transaction. And so you can start asking about that in discovery. And you can start objecting at trial because of a lack of foundation or hearsay. And you can cross-examine to show that there was no real transaction and therefore the paper supposedly memorializing the transaction was just void, empty, uh, bogus uh, paper that was intended to injure, steal from the investors, and they knew would ultimately be used for uh, creating more fictitious paper for foreclosures and then liquidations of property, which gave them two things. And one thing it gave them was a stamp of approval from a judge in a court of competent jurisdiction making it appear that everything that they had just done was valid. In other words, all the facts that I just recited were covered. 
And the other thing they get, obviously, is the house. And even in the proceeds of the house, they usually claim all of those because of uh, so-called service or advances, which, in fact, were paid from the investors' own funds, if they were paid at all. The claim is there all the time, but whether there's any basis for the claim is another story. But very often, the uh, so-called master servicer, who is also the underwriter, grabs most of the money saying, uh, this homeowner hasn't paid in 10 years, and therefore we continued making payments, so we're entitled to receive uh, payments back. This is the servicer, not the trust. And if you examine that claim, you'll see that it has no logic and makes no sense. The apparent rebuttable presumptions run against you. In every case, the success of the foreclosure is entirely dependent upon the success of the foreclosure mill attorneys invoking legal presumptions of fact because the actual facts are different than what is um, asked to be presumed by the judge and which is presumed most often by the judge unless you interpose the appropriate objections, cross-examination, etc., and enforce discovery. But one legal presumption that would wipe out all borrower defenses is never invoked by the lawyers for these fictitious named trusts and the banks and services, etc. The one thing they never claim is the status of holder in due course, because that would mean that they would have to prove that the trust purchased the debt the note, and the mortgage, and in a transaction in which the foreclosing party is or was the purchaser in good faith and without knowledge of the borrower's defenses. Instead, the crafty lawyers get judges to presume that the foreclosing party should be treated as a holder in due course thereby evading their true burden of proof. In fact, it's flipped. The, if the transaction was real, if the trust's ownership of the debt, note, and mortgage was real, they would claim the status of holder in due course. The fact that they don't is an admission that at least one of the elements of a holder in due course is absent, and the only one that makes any sense that, that is for sure, is that there was a purchase. And if there was no purchase, or it never occurred that a third party entrusted the uh, assets, the loan, or loans, or pool of loans, to the trustee, then they can't claim holder in due course, because in fact, they're basically just a debt collector. It's no mystery why they, they don't use the holder in due course allegation, but the absence of that allegation simply and logically leads to a conclusion. One or more elements is missing. Which part? 
Is it the purchase, the good faith, or knowledge? Possession of the note, or even claimed possession of the original note, is often sufficient for pleading since it is presumed that delivery of the note implies a right to enforce. But possession of the original mortgage or deed of trust, showing that it had been recorded, is not sufficient for enforcement by foreclosure unless it has been acquired for value. An agent slash servicer may enforce the mortgage if it is given the right to enforce by the purchaser of the debt. Again, we come back down to simple facts. If somebody owns the debt, then they're the ones who can give rights to third parties as agents or whatever to enforce the note, enforce the mortgage, or both. So the argument from Foreclosure Defense Council should be that the agent servicer may have alleged sufficient grounds to survive a motion to dismiss in an action seeking judgment for non-payment of the note, and that might be sufficient at trial if it is unopposed. But if the homeowner successfully denies the allegations in his or her answer and affirmative defenses and challenges the legal presumptions that are being used, then the enforcer should be required to prove the facts that are being presumed. So so we go back to, for for the sake of clarity, we go back to the uh, presumed facts which are that the homeowner received a loan from the named lender. That's what's presumed. In fact, we know that's not true in many cases, most cases. The named lender, the payee on the note, and the so-called lender on the mortgage was the source of funds for the loan. That's another presumed fact, which we know is generally not true. Successors each purchased the entire loan, the debt, note, and mortgage or deed of trust. We know that's not true. And anyone who has attempted to perform discovery, subpoena, or whatever about that issue has been stonewalled, unfortunately, with more success than not. Endorsement of the note was a memorialization of the purchase transaction or was a memorialization of authority to enforce on behalf of the owner who made the purchase. That's a presumed fact. That's also not true. Assignment of the mortgage was a memorialization of the purchase transaction or was a memorialization of authority to enforce on behalf of the owner who made the purchase. Same thing as what I said with the note. At all times material, the servicer, if any, was authorized to act, administer the loan, was authorized by the owner of the debt. That's presumed, but is not the case. The current foreclosing party legally exists. If a business entity like a trust, the jurisdiction in which the entity was formed 
is known and the entity exists. If a trust, the entity fulfills all elements of a trust. A trustor, a settlor, a trust instrument, beneficiaries, and a race. In other words, a body of the trust. And the name trustee actively manages the business activity of the trust assets. If the foreclosing party, that's another thing that's presumed and not true. Another thing that's presumed and not true. Uh, if the foreclosing party is a trust, the subject note, note and uh, subject debt, I should say, note and mortgage were entrusted, transferred to the trustee of that trust to administer on behalf of beneficiaries in accordance with the trust instrument. This is the mandatory body of the trust in all states. It never happened. Transaction in which the debt, note, and mortgage were purchased occurred prior to the initiate to initiating the foreclosure proceeding. That's presumed. It was never true. The only party with a direct interest in the proceeds of liquidation of the property is the foreclosing party or the purchaser on whose behalf the foreclosing party is acting. That's another false presumption. The foreclosing party is the injured party caused by a breach of a loan agreement with the homeowner or borrower. So I just ran through some of the analysis that we do on behalf of attorneys and uh, pro se litigants. Uh, you may have to listen to this more than one. It was a, it was a brain dump. I'll, we'll be back with you next week. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to the Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at the Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.